Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. We are in the first chapter of the book of Daniel. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. Youths without blemish and good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to educate for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel's resolve or resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. So this week we're going to be in in Daniel chapter 1, as we just read. We're kind of in between... Um, series. You know, we, we usually kind of stick with a whole book and stick to it kind of like a, a series, but um, we're kind of in an in-between time right now. Uh, so we're going to just do this this one chapter of Daniel um, and and then kind of move on to a, another series later. Uh, 
But I, I chose this um, kind of, just kind of God placing this on my heart. I've read a read a book kind of on this uh, a couple of years ago, um, so I felt like this this idea of uh, of Daniel is very very applicable uh, to us. Um, but then that that first song uh, that we sang, "My One Comfort," and I may have said this before. That first line in that song is probably one of my most like favorite lines in in modern like worship songs. My one comfort, both in life and death, is that I am not my own. And if you think about it, it captures so well the the peace that we have in God's sovereignty, and the hope that we have in Christ. And it stands in contrast to to everything that the world will tell you, which makes me like it even more, uh, because it's totally different than what everyone else will tell you, because the Bible is totally different than what the world will tell you. The world wants you to think that you are in control of your own destiny. And we often hear the, the phrase, follow your heart. That is not in here. The Bible says the opposite of that, that our hearts are full of sin, and we need new hearts. But thankfully, we are not our own, and we can trust in God's sovereignty. And I want that, God's sovereignty, to be our endpoint and our anchor today as we study Daniel chapter 1. And so last week, Camden Thompson, uh, we had the guest, guest speaker from, from New King Church, he taught us uh, from Second Timothy on God's kindness toward us and how we are to take his kindness and emulate that kindness in how we deal with people in the world. So this week we can, we can kind of build on that as we think about, how, about what our relationship with the world should be. And prior, prior to Jesus' crucifixion, he said in his prayer that just as he was sent into the world, he is, he's sending us into the world. But also that we are not of the world. There's a difference in being in the world and being of the world. And while things may seem completely out of control or that we are fighting a losing battle in the world, that couldn't be further from the truth. Nothing is out of God's control. So while thinking about about what to preach on today, um, I I mentioned that book, Brave by Faith. It's by uh, Alistair Beck. He's actually one of my my favorite pastors to listen to, so I recommend uh, looking up his, uh, his sermon podcast. He's got an app, too, um, called Truth for Life. Lots of good stuff in there, um, and even like backlog way back into the, the 80s um, of his, his sermons. Um, but in this book, he takes the book of Daniel and compares what these people went through in their long exile in Babylon, and then he applies it to us as Christians living in the world today. And he says in the intro chapter that that we are finally facing the fact that this broken, sinful world in which we live is not actually our home. That what the Bible says concerning believers in this world is really true, that we really are aliens and that we really are strangers. So as I try in this sermon to do this same thing, to compare Daniel and his friends' experience as exiles in Babylon, to our own lives in the world today, I'll, I'll be borrowing heavily from, from Alistair Begg, his sermons, and, and this book. And I felt it would be easiest to do this by taking this large portion of the beginning of the book of Daniel, 
because just in this first chapter, we see a lot of things happen, a lot of bad things uh, from, from Daniel's perspective. And the situation kind of continues to get, get worse uh, for them, if you read on, but, but they're never out of God's hand. They're never out of his control. And it's easy to read over a passage like this, like we do any historical account, and not stop and take time to put ourselves in, in these people's shoes, to think about how crushing and terrifying this would be. I mean, these are like Bible heroes, right? They won't have moments of doubt when they're told to give up their, their religions and adopt pagan ones, will they? They won't be afraid when they're faced with being thrown into a pit of hungry lions or burned alive in a furnace. Oh, of course not. But we must remember that these were real people with real fears and doubts. But despite these fears and doubts and uncertainty about what their future would look like, they lived with confidence and courage, not in their own strength, but in the strength and sovereignty of God. As one commentator put it, to live faithfully, we first need to know God's faithfulness. And while on one hand, trusting in God's faithfulness and sovereignty can bring us unfathomable unfathomable peace and comfort, on the other hand, it might not be the earthly comfort that we had in mind. So before we dig a little bit more into the, into the story of this passage, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, we pray this morning that you speak to us through your word, through your word here in the book of Daniel, and help us to take these words and apply it to our lives, and to remember that while we live in this world, we are not of this world. Through this, we pray that you, you shine the light of Christ to those who are lost around us so that they may see these good deeds and glorify you. Lord, in your name we pray. Amen. So to give you a little historical background on this story, the book of Daniel takes place in the late 7th, early 6th century B.C., meaning about 600 years before Christ. And this was in a time when Jews had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And both, kings, both kingdoms had been steadily falling away from following after God. Both had had many bad kings and made the worship of false gods and idols the main religion of their nations. And sprinkled in those lines of, of kings in both nations, there were, there were some good ones who tried to bring it back but overall, they had been steadily falling away from, from worshiping the one true God. And because of this, God sent judgment on his people. And this wasn't a sudden outburst of anger from God. He warned them through the prophet Jeremiah that this was going to take place. And in Jeremiah 25, 8 and 9, it says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord. And for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror 
a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. So this is likely not the first passage that you think of when you're wanting a short, uplifting morning devotion. Not exactly chicken soup for the soul material. Um, But as Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is the whole word of God. So I encourage you to dig deeper in your study of God's word, even into these dark passages about desolation and judgment, because it is all God's word, and it all demonstrates his sovereignty and his love. So now as we see here in the beginning of, of chapter Dan, uh, beginning chapter of Daniel, uh, the time has finally come when God sends the judgment that he had warned them about. Many had doubted uh, that this would actually happen and had chosen to believe other prophets, false prophets, um, who had contradicted Jeremiah and who had presented a more positive short-term outcome by saying that that God would, would fend off this rising Babylonian empire and keep them safe. But now there was King Nebuchadnezzar at their doorstep laying siege to their home just as God had said that he would. The catastrophe had come, and and we can immediately see God's hand in it. And there are three sentences in the passage that we read uh, today that start with the words, God gave, or the Lord gave. So here in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So this is speaking about Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. He gave his people into his hand. And I'm sure that from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, he's, he's quite proud of himself. He, like the leaders of many other ancient world empires, was seeking to gain power by conquest. That was how empires grew back then. Attack and take over your neighboring land, force them to adopt your culture and customs, Make them fight for you, and then you move on to the next one. You just keep growing. Nebuchadnezzar had just ransacked Judah, only a, probably a small hurdle in his race for power. Uh, but while he, he would have liked to attribute his victory to his own tactics and battle prowess, he was simply a pawn in the hand of God. To refer again back to Jeremiah, now in chapter 27, verse 6, it says, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. So even without knowing God, without loving God, without worshiping God or intending to serve God, Nebuchadnezzar functioned as God's servant. God was sovereign over the most powerful world leaders 2,600 years ago, and he's sovereign over the most powerful world leaders and movements today. So we see that the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, and some valuables and and sacred things from the temple were looted by the Babylonian army and taken back as spoils of war to Babylon and even placed before the images of of their false gods. And along with all of this loot, uh, Nebuchadnezzar commanded that his army take prisoners uh, from the royal and noble families, as well as some craftsmen, Uh, that could be useful uh, to serve in his palace. 
So how, how humiliating would this be for the kingdom of Judah? He didn't take just, just any people off the street. These kids would have been considered the future of their kingdom. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were of these taken. And they would have still been children. We, we tend to think of these Bible people as, as grown mature adults, but scholars estimate that Daniel may have been around the age of 14 when this happened. And that makes sense considering the plans that Nebuchadnezzar had for them. He wanted them to still be young and, and moldable, conformable to his culture and the values and religions of his pagan people. So when, when these guys, and there, there were more, but these are kind of our, our main protagonists in, in Daniel's written account of it, but there were a lot more. But when they all arrived to Babylon, they were essentially enrolled in, in Nebuchadnezzar's academy of brainwashery, basically. Uh, in three years, you can learn, learn the language and literature and gods of the Chaldeans, all while eating like a king. They, may, they might have been expecting to have been thrown into a dungeon and, and used as nothing more than slave labor. But the plan was to educate them and even let them eat and drink off of, of the king's menu. Now, Alistair Begg points out that, that for many people, a change of location is often enough to change everything about a person. And think about how often kids who grow up in godly homes, who grow up in church, when, they're, when they go off to college, they completely lose their faith. One survey uh, even estimates that roughly 70% of high school students who enter college as professing Christians will leave with little to no faith. They're just going to a different place with different people who hold different worldviews, no longer attending their church or having their family for reinforcement. That's often enough to make college kids today to decide to put their faith on pause or, or maybe just put it down entirely. And I went to a Christian university in Tennessee, um, and you would think that the statistics would be a whole lot better there. Um, I don't know the exact st statistics, but from my experience, I saw a lot of people lose faith at that Christian university. And I think by my observation, my graduating class was probably mostly not faithful followers of Christ. So for Daniel and his friends, there must have been little hope. Taken away as young teenagers to a strange place, not knowing if they would ever see their families or their homes again. And not only that, but they were actively trained to give up their faith and their culture. That was the whole plan of Nebuchadnezzar's program here, brainwashed all of that stuff out of them and put our stuff in. And just to make sure that, that they had nothing left to remember their old lives by, they even had their names taken from them. It sounds like the low point in a good like drama story where the character you know, loses everything except their name. But these guys even had their names taken from them and had Babylonian names given to them. And this is even more significant because each of their original names actually had a linguistic connection to the words Yahweh or Elohim, which are different Hebrew names for the God of the Bible. But their new names, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
were connected with and meant to honor Babylonian gods. And on top of being forcibly moved away from their homes and re-educated and having their names changed, they were even fed differently. A daily portion of the, of the food that the king ate and the wine that he drank, it says. And this actually seems like the best part of the whole deal. Literally, they're going to be eating like kings. Uh, but this was where Daniel chose to draw the line. See, under, under the old law, before Christ came to fulfill the law, the Jewish people had, had certain dietary restrictions. Uh, so whatever was on the king's diet plan, it must have been contrary to, to this. So it says Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. So he goes to his super, supervisor, basically the, the eunuch assigned over him, and asks if an exception can be made for him and his friends. He requests that the food that would defile them be taken away and to just leave them with vegetables and water. That will be good enough. We'll just we'll survive off of that. Um, and this is where God, uh, this is where we come to the second uh, God gave praise. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. God gave his people over to Nebuchadnezzar, but he didn't leave them there to, to fend for themselves. God made this guy have favor on Daniel. He liked him. Because of this, he was sympathetic to Daniel's request. But he also was still kind of afraid of what the consequences would be to him if the king finds out that he changed their diet plan. Like, they're they're looking kind of scrawny now. What did you do? Did you change my plan? Are we going to lose your head? Um, Because of the favor that God had, given this guy toward Daniel, they, they were able to come to a compromise and agree to do a 10-day test run on this diet. And interestingly, the, this passage has actually inspired a fad weight loss diet called the Daniel Fast, where people will do this. They'll, they'll basically become a temporary vegan for 21 days to lose weight. But I guess whoever came up with this didn't either continue to read or they didn't look very close at this passage because Daniel and his friends became fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. <laughs> Obviously, that's not the goal for people who do the diet today. Uh, but, but the king wanted these guys bulked up um, so, th- so that they would have you know, the energy and strength to do whatever work he had for them. Um, so they're, to their supervisor's surprise, though, at the end of that 10-day trial run, these guys looked more well-fed than, than the others who were eating the king's food. So it was settled this steward would continue to take away that good king's food and get, leave them with just the vegetables and water. Um, and as, as this chapter goes on, we continue to see God giving them favor. The last God gave statement says, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So God allowed them to thrive in the situation where he placed them. The skill and understanding that God gave them far outmatched the skill of everyone else around them. And remember, as I said earlier, to live faithfully, we first need to understand God's faithfulness. These guys were living faithfully. No one would have blamed them for just giving in and doing what they had to do to survive even if that meant compromising more and more on their beliefs. And don't, we shouldn't fool ourselves that, 
that thinking that temptations like this of compromising on beliefs only come when your life is threatened by an authoritarian empire. We are tempted daily in our American setting to compromise on our beliefs. To compromise in our faithfulness. But that's not what these guys did. And God had favor on them. It's, it's easy to go with the flow of the culture or the times that we find ourselves in. But even a dead fish can go with the flow. It takes a, a live fish to go against, against the stream. And again, Alistair Begg notes in his book that our society looks much more like Babylon than Jerusalem, and increasingly so. And Tim, Cal- Tim Keller similarly, similarly says, we are entering a new era in which there is not only no social benefit to being Christian, but an actual social cost. Now culture is producing people for whom Christianity is not only offensive, but incomprehensible. But this is a story in Scripture that that shows us how we can live with confidence and courage in such a world. And it's easy when we are faced with our society changing toward the negative, right in front of our, our eyes constantly, to become discouraged in that. To think that we're... We're in a world that's just spiraling out of control. That maybe, maybe God isn't in control after all. Or to think that Satan is sovereign in the world. Good news, he is not. Satan is sovereign over nothing. Both God and Satan cannot be sovereign. Just by the nature of the, the definition of sovereign, they both cannot have ultimate power. And sure, Satan does have a foothold in the world because God is sovereign and he allows that. He's had that foothold in, in our world ever since Satan, ever since sin entered the world with Adam. But Satan was defeated by the, by the true and better Adam, Jesus Christ. And I recently heard someone describe Satan's hold in the world it kind of helped me like, better understand it uh, by comparing it to the post-Civil War, Civil War era of America. Even after the war had ended, the Confederacy had lost. There were still Confederate troops holding out and fighting for their cause. But in the long run, their cause would not stand. They had lost the war. Having a good time down there. Celebrating the fact that we won the war. <laughs> Similarly, Christ won the war, and God is in control. Even as Satan lashes out and tries to lead as many astray as possible to take with him to the lake of fire, where he will dwell forever. We as Christians are a part of Christ's eternal kingdom, not the kingdom that Satan is trying to build here, not of the, of the kingdom of this world. As Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the meantime, though, we live as exiles in the world, just as Daniel lived as an exile in Babylon. God is sovereign even here. But when we take a step back and look at our lives, are we living like this is our home, or are we living like our citizenship is in heaven? Jesus gave us one way that we can tell. Uh, in John 15, 18, and 19, he said, If the world hates you, 
Know that it has, has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now this doesn't mean that we need to go out of our way to be obnoxious just so that we can be hated by the world. <laughs> there are people that are hated by the world that aren't gods. <laughs> so don't confuse being godly with being obnoxious. Uh, in Matthew 5, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we are shining the light of Christ, we will naturally face some opposition. We will be told that we are intolerant and hateful or even old-fashioned for believing the Bible. The light is bright and may be intolerable to the one that's been hiding in darkness their whole life. So how can we use Scripture like this in Daniel chapter 1 to inform and instruct ourselves in how to live in our postmodern, post-Christian world? It's helpful to remind ourselves frequently through Scripture that this is not our home. It might have been easier for Daniel in the first year or two of his exile in Babylon to remember this, as this was all new and uncomfortable. But as, as they went on, they had to continually you know, remember, this is, this is not my home. I belong somewhere else. And it might have gotten easier and easier to give in and accept that I'm just now a Babylonian. That's just how it is. But at the end of chapter 1, it says Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So if, if you look at your Babylonian ancient history, um, that means that he served under four different kings in Babylon for 70 years. Daniel had to really know and trust in God. Not just know about God, a lot about him. He could have, it's different studying theology and knowing a lot about God than knowing God. Much later in, in Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, it says, The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. If we treat God just as the big man upstairs or like a genie that we can take off the shelf when we're having a hard day and, and then pop him right back up there when we feel like we've got things back under control, is that really knowing God? Is that really trusting in his sovereignty? If we can just put him back and trust in our own supposed sovereignty. If we, if we really know him, then we know him as the King of kings and Lord of lords. What power then can those who hate us for his sake really have over us? If God is for us, who can be against us? So we must seek to truly know God. And if we're seeking to truly know God and to let this inform every part of our lives, then this should be bleeding over into the lives of our families, our friends, and our co-workers, everyone around us. Daniel was only a young teenager when he was standing boldly and firmly in his faith in Babylon. And yes, our kids' faith should be their own, eventually. But we are continuously shining the light of Christ in their lives. Proverbs says that if we train a child in the way that they should go, even when they are old, they will not depart from it. 
Will, you, will your children be prepared to stand firm in their faith in school? With their friends? When they're told that they would be happier if they changed their gender identity? Will they be able to stand firm in their faith and be able to say that their identity is in Christ? And not in their gender, not in their sexuality or style or sport or anything else. When they're asked by their friends or teachers to set God aside and figuratively bow down to the God of whatever current social trend is plaguing our culture, will they? Are we raising them or are, are, are their teachers raising them? Is their TikTok or Instagram or their phone, tablet, whatever raising them? And I'm speaking to myself as a parent just as much as I have been for the rest of this sermon. It terrifies me to think of the possibility that my kids would not have the faith to stand boldly for God as Daniel and his friends did because I failed to brightly shine the light of Christ in their lives. So at, at our house, we've recently been doing uh, some scripture memorization with our kids. And the one currently on our whiteboard that we have written there at home is, is very applicable uh, to this. It's Philippians 2, uh, 14 through 16. It says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's the part where we're kind of really hitting hard with them right now. <laughs> um, but it goes on, verse 15, uh, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So finally, are we thinking through where we're going to draw our lines, as Daniel did? And what I mean is, as the world pushes us to make compromises on our faith, are we drawing lines based in Scripture that we will not cross? We must draw those lines before we come to them, or it will be much more difficult to stand firm. Daniel drew his line at eating the king's food that would have been defiling for him. Later, there were lines that he wouldn't cross that when, when a law was passed that people could only pray to the king and to nothing or no one else. He drew that line. He continued to pray to God. His friends would not cross their line when they were told to bow down to the king's golden image, even if it meant being burned alive. And if they had been unsure in that moment, how they would respond to things like this before they happened, they would have been tempted to just, just go along with it, preserve your life so we can just stay alive. We must draw our lines now and base them in, in the Word of God. Because Daniel and his friends remained faithful to God, God gave them favor. Their time was obviously not without trials, but they lived with confidence and courage in the sovereignty of God, their King of Kings. Their faithfulness even influenced those around them. For a time, even Nebuchadnezzar, the king himself, praised their God because he was in awe of God's power and their unwavering faithfulness to him. That alone should be convicting to us that they lived so faithfully that the others that were around them, who didn't worship God, couldn't help but sing praises to God. So as I, as I begin to close, I pray that we all take away from this passage a newfound awareness 
that in a very real sense, this world is not our home. Hebrews 13, 14 says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And Jesus said to his disciples before his crucifixion that he was going to prepare a place. That place is in heaven, and it will be our eternal home with no more sickness, sadness, or suffering of any kind. And I pray that we let that reality shape how we live out our lives here. As a final thought, in in Jeremiah 29, God had his prophet Jeremiah write a letter to those exiles in Babylon that I think can be very uh, applicable to us in our own exile here. God comforts them by basically saying that this is not your home, but this is where I want you for now. So make a home there, but it is not your home. And then in verse 7, he says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. So in essence, even though this is not where we belong, and we are among a people who will hate us, we are to pray for them and and shine the light of Christ in this darkness. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this word. Um, that we see this story of Daniel and his friends in, in exile in a place for basically their entire lives that was not their home. But it's so easy for us to feel like we are at home. We're humans. We're supposed to live in this world. But as Christians, we are made for another world. Lord, help us to to live in this world but not be of this world. I pray that your word defines everything that we do and that we shine the light of Christ to the wayward and lost. They may see you and glorify you as Nebuchadnezzar did. We thank you again for your word. Lord, I pray that we don't take this and hear it as an interesting story and move along, but we take it and let it define and change our lives and how we view our lives here. And help us to remember your sovereignty in in the struggle, in the, the darkness, that Satan is not sovereign here. He barely has a foothold because you have allowed it for now. Lord, you are sovereign, and the war is over. In your name we pray. Amen.